Good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to be here with you all this Sunday. A couple of questions you might have before I begin. One is, yes, my name is really Tim Schmidt. I know it's somewhat startling for a pastor to have a last name along those lines, but it's been my last name for all my life. And the other one is that, yes, I'm in a boot of some sort this morning. Uh, Apparently, I did not get the memo that when you turn 40, you're supposed to stop playing basketball with people younger and better than you are. So about two months ago, I tore my Achilles tendon, which is a bad one. But I'm recovering and, and only a few more weeks in the boot. Uh, again, it's a privilege to be here this Sunday to preach for you all. Kyle texted me this morning, sends his love. And please do know what a wonderful pastor that you do have here. Uh, he is, he is an, an amazingly wonderful, godly, gifted guy. And I've known him for about 13 years or so. And uh, you truly are blessed to have him here serving as your pastor. Uh, Several Sundays ago, our cul-de-sac in Austin, Texas, threw a going-away party for one of our neighbors, actually our next-door neighbor who lives directly to the the right of us. They're moving out of state, and so our cul-de-sac got together to throw a party, and and everyone on the cul-de-sac came, all eight houses, several other houses, including the folks who are moving into our next-door neighbor's house. And it was a wonderful party. But two awkward things happened to me at the very, very beginning of the party. One of those is that my neighbor who's moving away, he introduces me to the neighbor who's moving in, and he says this, this is Tim. He's a minister. If you ever do anything really, really bad, you don't have to go to church. Just go next door, tell him what you did, and it'll be okay. So that was awkward thing number one. I mean, what do you say to that? Welcome to the neighborhood, be good, the pastor's watching, or something along those lines. So that was one. The second thing is that another neighbor who is a devout Christian man and has actually lived on the street for 40 years, one of the first people to live in this neighborhood, he was in charge of grilling. And when he got to a point where he was almost finished grilling the burgers and the hamburgers and things, he announces before everyone, Tim, since you're the professional minister on the block, as if every block has a professional minister or something. Since you're the one for our block, would you mind praying for us? And everyone froze. Uh, some people actually winced a little bit. There was, there was shock on the faces of many. You've got to understand that Austin, Texas, though it is in Texas, it is still Austin. Uh, and and it is, a, it is a, a little blue dot in the midst of a very red sea. And people began to stare at me. And, and I didn't know what to do, so I shook off my surprise and my shock, and I just said, yeah, well, let's all gather around. And so we ever, I didn't have them hold hands, that would have freaked everybody out, but we all gathered around <laughs> in the midst of this cul-de-sac, and I prayed for our neighbors who were leaving, I prayed for everyone who was staying, I prayed for our street, gave thanks for the relationships that we had, I prayed that we would still, that the Lord would enable us to continue to love one another and be neighbors to one another as we should. And in many ways, it was very, very beautiful, very awkward in some ways, but also very beautiful and very bold of my neighbor, knowing that that very few of us on our block and on our cul-de-sac are Christians. And here's what struck me about it. What struck me is that everyone was tolerant of of me and my prayer and my, my neighbor's request. Not everyone agreed with it. Certainly some people winced and you could see their shock and even the fact that that they did not want for us to do this, but they, they didn't oppose it. And what I thought about was that my neighbor who made this request 
40 years ago, he would have expected everyone to agree with this action. He would have expected everyone to agree and to expect that some minister who lives nearby would pray for this cul-de-sac party. But we've moved as a society. and, And certainly not everyone on my block was in agreement, though everyone was tolerant of it. And that's the movement that's happened. We've moved from an age of agreement about the Christian faith and our way of seeing the world to one of tolerance in which we as Christians are tolerated as members of society, though we become a minority voice among a number of other much more significant majority voices in our culture. And that is a transition that has been very, very difficult for the church and continues to be very difficult for the church. And I do think that we're also on a precipice of moving again from an age of agreement to tolerance to one of opposition. If you've read the the George R.R. Martin novels, the the Game of Thrones, one of the refrains in there is winter is coming, winter is coming. And many Christian thinkers think that winter is coming in a new way for the church in our culture where we'll experience greater opposition to us. If that is so, the question we have to face now is how will we respond to that if and when that winter does come? How do we respond to that? And that's one of the reasons that in our church in Austin, All Saints, that we're looking at the book of Acts this summer. is because here in the book of Acts, especially where the Christians in the first century stood in Acts chapter 4, it's a very similar place as to where we stand now as Christians in our culture. Because here, in what was just read for you, they're, they're not being opposed. Not, not fully and completely, nothing like they will later in the book. They're being tolerated. They're not being jailed or persecuted or beaten or martyred. They're just being told by their culture's kings to be quiet. And that's it. But in the very next chapter, for the very first time, Christians are beaten. And then just two chapters later in chapter 7, the first Christian martyr dies. In the book of Acts as a whole, what you find if you read through it all is it's in one sense, and from one angle, it is a book about Christians living in a world opposed to them. But not simply that, not simply Christians living in a world opposed to them, but also seeing the gospel go forth with unmeasurable and remarkable fruit unhindered by that opposition. In fact, the very last verse in the book is chapter 28, verse 31. And there we read about the Apostle Paul, who is who is being who has been arrested. He's in house arrest there in Rome, but it speaks about everyone coming to him. And him welcoming everyone, him paying for his own place of imprisonment, welcome everyone and boldly proclaiming the gospel. And it says the last phrase is with all boldness and without hindrance. In fact, that that word that we translate without hindrance is actually an adverb. It'd be better to translate it unhinderedly with all boldness, unhinderedly. That is the book of Acts. Great opposition, but Jesus, as the ascended Lord and King, bringing forth great fruit unhinderedly. We in the church here in our culture, we don't necessarily know what this world is like yet, but we need to know. And we need to know, and we need to see two things that happen here that the Christians here do in chapter 4 that we need to learn to do as well. The first of those two things is that they connect their struggle with a greater struggle. Verses 8, 5 through 12, which were read to you, they, they tell the end of the story that's behind this story. And that is that the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John, at the beginning of chapter 4, they're walking to the temple. And as they walk to the temple, they encounter a lame man who has been paralyzed since birth. 
and he's begging for alms outside the temple because he cannot go into the temple because of his disability. So he, he's never been able to worship as his people worship. He's certainly never had a job. Uh, he's also never had a wife or a family. Uh, he, he has effectively had nothing that would constitute life in first century Palestinian Judaism. He, he's effectively dead. So he's asking for money. Peter looks at him and says, I have no money to give you, but what I do have, I give to you. And he speaks the name of Jesus over him, and immediately he's healed. He's effectively raised from the dead there. And when this happens, this leads to Peter's third major sermon. Uh, And that's what's recorded for you here. It's before the Jewish leaders. At his first sermon, 3,000 people were converted. At his second sermon, 5,000 people were converted. Uh, And then before the Jewish leaders here who treat him and John just like they treated Jesus. They don't like the, their people, quote unquote, following after these apostles. So they bring them in and they say, give an account of that which you have done and what has happened. It leads to this third great sermon of Peter's. And guess how many people were converted? 5,000 in the first sermon, no, 3,000 in the first sermon, 5,000 in the second. And, and how many here in this third sermon of Peter's? Zero, none. The question is Why? Why are none converted in this third sermon? It's basically the same content as the previous two. And Luke, the author of Acts, he answers that question, why? Why were none converted? By quoting Psalm 2. By by putting the words of Psalm 2 on the lips of these first century Christians as they pray. They, They pray these very words that were read to you earlier. Verse 25 and verse 26, you might have noticed, are a direct quote of Psalm 2. Originally, these were King David's words when he was was the savior, the king of Israel. By the way, that's what it means to be the Lord's anointed. To be the anointed one means to be the king, the one whom they poured oil out upon to mark him off as the king of Israel. And so David prayed these very words here. Why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Because that's what's happening here. And now, again, the leaders of Israel are the ones who are raging. Leaders of Israel are the ones who are plotting. David, however, spoke about all of the pagan nations all around him. But here, these Christians, they connect their religious and their political leaders, their Jewish religious and political leaders, their kings, the ones in power in their society. They connect them with pagan kings. For our children, I mean, they would know that the story of, of the Philistines, of David and Goliath. That's who they're aligning their leaders are. Now think about that. These were supposed to be the leaders of the people of God. These were supposed to be the leaders of the Jewish nation, which was to be the people of God set amongst all of the other peoples of the world. But here, using this psalm, they connect these leaders and they make them a part of a far greater and far older struggle than just this one against the early church. One, a struggle that constitutes the entire scope and, and of the Bible, the, the Bible as a whole in its entirety. Because throughout the scriptures, as you read from story to story, you find people setting themselves against God in the very core of their being and committing themselves to opposing him. I mean, very, from the very, very beginning, in the story of Adam and Eve, Uh, Adam sins, Eve sinned. They go away and God has to come to them and ask them a question, which is the question, where are you? And, And we could read and interpret that a lot of different ways. One way would be to say, where are you in relationship to me? Where are you in this cosmic struggle 
that is going on between me and all that is opposed to me. Where are you now? And then we follow up with Cain, their, their firstborn son. And God comes to him and, and God says, sin is crouching at your door. Beware. It's craving or it's desire, probably best translate, it's craving is for you. Because that's what sin is. It's, it's the metaphor, the image there of sin is like a, an animal outside of their door, of his door, waiting to consume him. Because that's what sin is. Sin is a power. It is a power. It's not necessarily, first and foremost, something that you do. It's something that does you. And so he says, don't do that. Don't let that in. But we all know that he does. And then the stories go on. The people of Babel come next, which may be the prime Old Testament example of people set against God in the very core of their being in an opposition that utterly, ultimately, utterly proves vain and and pointless. Now, why do I tell you all of that? To emphasize to you that our world is not neutral, that our hearts are not neutral, that they're not uncontested, that they're places of struggle between God and sin and even evil. Which is why in our church, week after week, we pray the Lord's Prayer. And one of the refrains in the Lord's Prayer is deliver us from evil. We don't necessarily know exactly what that's like. It's easy for us, at least in my church, in Austin, Texas, especially the part of Austin that we live in, the part of Austin that Jack grew up in, where my boys are being raised. It's easy for us to think that we're somehow set apart and immune from the, from the struggle and the cosmic evil that's happening in our world because we're physically safer than most. And we're far more affluent than most. And, and, and the people, my neighbors, myself, we have a social power that so many people the world over don't have. We don't know what it's like to live in Baton Rouge. We don't know what it's like to have to be an African-American in Baton Rouge or even a police officer now, especially a white police officer in Baton Rouge. I don't know if you heard this morning that there was a shooting again in Baton Rouge and at least three police officers were killed and as many as seven were injured. It's so easy for us where I live to think that's not my world. And I've only been in Santa Barbara a few days, but it, it, it strikes me as very similar to Austin in many ways. You live in a city filled with beautiful people. You, you live in a city that is filled with affluence. You live in a city that's dedicated to, to leisure and to recreation and to pleasure. It's like Austin without, with a beach and without the 100-degree heat. God bless you for that. Uh, this last Sunday at church, in preaching on a different passage, I mentioned a Vanity Fair article to my church. Uh, the article is called Daddy's Dates and the Girlfriend Experience. It's in this month's Vanity Fair. And it tells the story of young women who are, who are doing things in order to make their, end, their ends meet. And one of the things that they're doing is what's called camming. Camming is a word I've never heard of before, but effectively what it is is taking your clothes off before your computer video in order to perform various sexual acts that people pay for and watch you perform through the Internet. Uh, And also other young women are um, using various Internet sites to facilitate relationships with older men that they can be an escort for an evening or a girlfriend for an evening or, or just kind of a standard girlfriend whenever that older man would want for them to do that, and and for a price, of course. 
And the article asked the question, is this the new prostitution economy in our culture? And I mentioned it to our people last week because the setting of the article and even the place in which the interviews took place, it wasn't New York City. It wasn't Los Angeles. It wasn't San Francisco or New Orleans or someplace along those lines. It was Austin, Texas. In a, in a hotel downtown that I have gone to and sat in the, rel- in the restaurant where the very same people were being interviewed. And some of the girls being interviewed were the University of Texas students who are using these means to pay for their student loans. Because it's so easy for us to read this and to hear stories about Baton Rouge and to think that's not my world, but it is. It is our world. And the question is, what are we to do? What are we to do beyond connecting our struggle to this greater story that constitutes the Bible in its entirety? What these Christians do here is they pray because they make a couple of other connections. Besides just their struggle to the struggle, they also speak about Jesus with the very same language that Psalm 2 speaks of David. In verse 25, quoting Psalm 2, David is called God's servant. And then in verse 26, he's also called the Lord's anointed. And those are the very same words that the Christians here speak of, use to speak of Jesus in verse 27, where they call him your holy servant whom you anointed. In Greek, that word that we translate anointed is literally Christos or Christ. And again, to be the anointed one means to be, means to be set apart for a special purpose. And here in this context, to be set apart for the special purpose of being the king. They connect Jesus to David because Jesus is now for the church what David was to Israel. The, the savior king who fought for them. And who, as our king, Jesus fights for us and he dwells with us. He's engaged in this struggle for us, with us. But then they also speak about themselves. In verse 29, they speak about themselves as servants. And it's a different word in the original language than the one that's translated servant that refers to Jesus. Here, this word referring to the Christians, your, your pastor is a New Testament scholar. Surely he's, he uses Greek on you all the time. And maybe you've heard the word douloi. Uh, it's, it's this word that can be translated servant or bondservant or maybe even slave. And that's the way that they speak about themselves, which is why they aren't surprised or shocked to find happening to them, not just the apostles, but the entire church, happening to them as slaves, the very same thing that happened to Jesus as their savior king when he entered the world. On God's side, in the, into this struggle against God, these Christians seem to get it. They seem to get it that they're suffering the same opposition from the same sources that Jesus himself endured. And so unshocked, unsurprised, they pray. And what do they pray for? What what do they pray for in the midst of this opposition? Let me ask you, if you can imagine yourself being opposed or even suffering because because you are a Christian. And not suffering because you're a jerk. We're not suffering because you're just obnoxious. There is a difference between suffering because you're an obnoxious Christian and then just suffering for the Christian faith. There is a significant difference. I've had lots of people say, oh, I'm suffering because I'm a Christian. I'm like, no, 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 you're suffering because you're a jerk. Stop being a jerk. And then maybe we'll talk about you suffering because you're a Christian. There is a difference. So if you're actually suffering because you are a Christian, what do you think you might pray for first? And let's assume that we, did, we would pray. 
And let's not be too quick in assuming that that's the first thing that we do because so many of us, myself included, we do lots and lots of things before we pray when we face opposition. All too often we argue, first of all. We experience some sort of difficulty and we begin to argue with those others that we feel are persecuting us or we criticize. We, we do unto others as, not as we would have them do unto us, but as they have done unto us. Or we assault our, our opponents or we withdraw entirely from them and we separate off into little Christian ghettos. But let's imagine that we actually would pray. What do you imagine that you might pray for first? Maybe you would pray, first of all, that God would stop the opposition. Very simply, just stop the opposition that is coming at you because you're a Christian. Or maybe for God to vindicate you. Because, at least in this regard, you're innocent. And, and for him to show and to, to, to vindicate your, your innocence. Or for him to bring about justice. And to give your opponents what their due is. Those are all fine and good prayers. You find them in the scriptures. You find them in the Psalms. That's just not what we find here. That's not what we find these Christians praying for. What do they pray for? They, they very simply pray for boldness. They pray for boldness to continue to speak. They pray for courage to continue to explain to the watching world what is happening in their midst. And friends, as Christian that is our job. That is our job first and foremost, primarily in this struggle between God and sin and death and evil. Our job is to openly and courageously, kindly, winsomely speak God's word, meaning that we explain it and we interpret it to the world who's coming to us and saying, what is going on in your midst? A number of years ago, I read a book by this man named Leslie Newbigin. He was a New Testament scholar. He was a missionary in India. And he, he made this very simple observation that if you read through all of the Apostle Paul's letters, you never find the Apostle Paul telling the church to go out in mission or to go out and to evangelize. Not that there's anything wrong with that. You just never find the Apostle Paul telling them to do that. And he asked the question, why? It's because all of the people, all of the people around where these churches were being started and planted, they were coming to them and saying, what is going on? What is happening in your midst where, where your lives are different? Your relationships are different. You look, you look like there's, being, there's, there's some healing that's happening in your life, that relationships are being healed, that, that friendships are being healed, that marriages are being healed, that emotional uh, and, and even mental scars and difficulties, they're being healed, that Jesus seems to be doing something along the lines of the miraculous in your midst. And then they would have to, with boldness and courage, explain to them, well, this is what's happening. So here's why we can do this. Here's, here's why we, as the church today, can continue to do this, continue to speak boldly, courageously, kindly, but still boldly. And that is because of how these Christians begin their prayer. Do you notice how they begin their prayer in verse 24? That they begin by speaking about the Lord as sovereign meaning that he rules over everything, that there's nothing, even their suffering, even their, their difficulty and their persecution, there's nothing that's outside or beyond his control. Not even the most absolute and the worst and most horrific and greatest loss that ever happened in human history is beyond the pale of his sovereignty. And what's the most egregious and horrific 
loss that the world has ever known. Well, if the gospel is true, it's the death of Jesus, the death of God in human form. And verse 28 says that even that loss, even that loss was according to God's plan. That it was the plan from the beginning. That verse 28 says even that God predestined it. That he decided it, he planned it, he carried it out. He carried out the cross, even though verse 27 says that Herod and Pontius Pilate and all of the Gentiles and all of the Jews, so all of the rulers of the world, Roman, Jewish, all of the peoples, Jew, Gentile alike, they were all gathered into Jerusalem against Jesus. But they were gathered there ultimately by God to do whatever God wanted according to his plan. The whatever of verse 28 is the cross where Jesus died to pay the penalty for for our opposition to him, for for all of us. Because we all know what it's like to be Cain, where where sin has crouched at our door and we have let it in. That sin hasn't just crouched at our door, but it's come into our lives and consumed us. God in human flesh, Jesus, God the Son, came, died for the penalty for that sin, but then he also died in order that we might see of his love for us, our hearts might be changed, and our opposition to him might end. And if, he, if God reigned sovereign then, at that point in human history, at the cross, then he still reigns sovereign now, regardless of what we might suffer, regardless of what, of what persecution or opposition or just loss and struggle and sadness and difficulty and challenge that we might face. Because the great hope of this passage is that question, why? Why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? It's not why in the sense of, God, why are you letting this happen to me? It's why in the sense of, why do they even bother? Why, why even bother? Because God ultimately uses everything. All opposition and sadness and sorrow and struggles and loss, everything. He ultimately uses it for the good of his people. And to accomplish that which he's planned. A number of years ago, I heard about this story from a a pastor who's in New York City. He's kind of famous. His name's Tim Keller. You might have heard of him. And he told this story about meeting this woman at his church, Redeemer, after worship one Sunday. He asked the question that he often asked, how did you get here? And she said, well, I'm a new Christian. She said, I've just become a Christian. And he said, well, tell me how. And she says, well, I'm a... I'm in finance in New York. I have a high-paying executive job. And a a few months ago, I made a major mistake that cost my company hundreds and hundreds and thousands, maybe millions of dollars. And I went into the board meeting just expecting that I was going to be fired. And I walked in with my boss, and we sat down, and my boss began. And he said, I want you to know that it is not her fault that this happened, it's my fault. Uh, I should have trained her better. I should have overseen and managed her better. Uh, It's my fault that this happened. I'm sorry. Um, It won't happen again, but I take responsibility for it. And because he had the relational capital with the board, they allowed not only for him, but her to keep her job. And so this lady and her boss were walking out and she said, why did you do that? Tell me why you did that. And he said, forget it. Don't worry about it. She said, no, I I want to know why you did that. I've been working in 
in finance and in New York City for, for decades, and no one has ever done anything like that for me before. I've had lots and lots of people try to blame me for something I didn't do, but I've never had someone defend me and take my place in something that I did do and I was guilty of. So why did you do that? And he said, I'm only going to tell you this once. And, and there's no reason to talk about it anymore. And there's no reason to spread it around the office. But I want you to know I'm a Christian. And I believe that Jesus died for me to pay the penalty for those things that I had done wrongly against him and others. And if he has done that for me, then I have to do that for others. And she said, where do you go to church? Friends, we are to pray for boldness, regardless of that which is in, happening in, in our life and that which we're enduring, to graciously winsomely, kindly to speak the word of Jesus, which we have known and which has come to us, that it and he might go to others. Amen.